so good to have you in the house of the Lord, and we're continuing in our Christmas series called The Beginning. If you were here in November, you know that we had a series called The End, so we're just a little bit mixed up here. We got, did the end first, and now we're going to the beginning. The End, as you know, is, is a discussion about the end of the world, or the end of the era, as it says in the scripture, and um, the end of the era talking about the end of the world as we know it, and how Jesus reestablishes his garden, his garden of Eden, if you want to call it that. In fact, the Bible starts in the garden of Eden, and it ends in the garden of Eden. You can check that out yourself. Read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then go back and read the last two chapters of Revelation. The garden of Eden represents the presence of God. It represents our relationship with God, where we're able to dwell in his presence. And you know that when sin entered in, we were banished from the presence of God. We're not allowed to dwell in his presence because sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. And so really the story from Genesis to Revelation is how man, how man, were, how man or humanity was kicked out of the presence of God and how eventually humanity is welcomed once again back into the presence of God, or as we call it, the Garden of Eden. Now, we talked about the end. Now we're talking about the beginning. We're talking actually about the beginning of the end of Satan's rule. We're talking about really the, the, the beginning of that story of redemption of humanity. We're talking about the beginning of Christ's great work on the earth to conquer Satan, to conquer death, to conquer the grave. We're talking about Jesus bringing life to people who received a death sentence. We'll talk about that more in just a moment, but, but let's just stop for a moment and think about Christmas. And we, we all know the familiar symbols and drawings, pictures. Uh, I mean, this is one, the, the wise men on their way to, to Mary and the baby Jesus in a manger. Uh, mangers always look like that. They only have thatched roof, They've got no back, no front. You notice that? I don't know why that is. The star. Let me show you a few more here. Everybody is familiar with that one. This, man, they jammed all the symbols of Christmas in there. There's the angels. There's the star. There's Mary, Joseph, the manger. There's shepherds. There's wise men. There's camels. There's uh, donkeys, cattle are lowing. There's even a chicken in there. We got it all, folks. Even though I don't know anywhere in the Bible where it talks about the chicken or the cattle lowing, but uh, there it is. It's, it's all in there. And we're all familiar with this. We've all received Christmas cards with, that look like this, uh, or we have sent out Christmas cards that look like this. Here's another one. There's, again, Mary and Joseph with the baby Jesus, and, and there's that chicken. I don't know. There's chickens always in these pictures, in these Christmas pictures. I don't, I don't get that. It's, uh, it must be a, some kind of a a spiritual chicken, I don't know. <laughs> hey, do you ever notice that when you get your Christmas cards, there's never actually a picture of Satan in your Christmas cards? Do you ever notice that? <laughs> I know you're thinking, Pastor, what are you talking about? I mean, who ever heard of getting a Christmas card with Satan in it? Well, I'm going to tell you something. At the birth of Jesus, there was not just wise men and shepherds, and although the wise men, by the way, in case you don't know, they weren't actually there the, more, the night of. 
it was probably anywhere between 50 days to, to two years later after his birth. But there they are. Uh, no Satan in that picture. But I'm going to tell you, folks, that Satan was present. He was there. He was doing his thing. And the reason you don't know about this is because, really, when you think about it, who wants to talk about the devil at Christmas? We'll talk about Santa Claus and reindeer and, and all the, the baby Jesus and the Christmas trees and holly and all those sweet, nice things. But we don't want to talk about Satan. And uh, I'm going to tell you that that's a significant, if not maybe the most important part of the story after the birth of Christ. You say, Pastor John, I don't remember anything in the Bible about Satan being around at that time during or after Jesus' birth. Let me show you this scripture verse. This is a, or before I show you that scripture verse, it's a picture by Rubens painted in about 1610. And um, you see little babies slaughtered. Hey, you know, I was just thinking, could you imagine sending out a Christmas card with this picture? Merry Christmas. It's not the image that you, which you look at and say, well, that, that reminds me of Christmas. It's a slaughter. Well, folks, here's what the Bible says. Matthew 2, 16. King Herod, who was the king when Jesus was born, sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Let me just give you a bit of background here. Some of you know the story quite well. For those of you that don't know the story, baby Jesus was born and, and uh, there was a sign in the sky. And you all know it's the, the star. And this star led the Magi to, to Jesus. Well, almost to Jesus. The wise men weren't exactly sure where to go, so what they did is they went to the, to the king, King Herod. And, and I'm telling you, these, are, these would be very rich, revered. Um, just the, the, everybody would have respected these people, including the king of Judea. They went to Herod and they said, where is the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the sky. Herod was, what? What's going on? What are you you talking about, the king, the baby king? What are you talking about? And so Herod immediately went to his, his advisors. They went to the teachers of the law, the experts in the scripture. They said, where, where, where's this Jesus that they're talking about? Now, now I've got to remind everybody, in case you don't know, these wise men, also called magi, they came from Babylon. And some 600 years earlier, you'll remember the prophet Daniel? Daniel was his responsibility when he was working for the king at that time, in, ba- in Babylon, that is. It was his job to give leadership and direction to the magi. A lot of people don't know that. And Daniel foretold the coming of the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And so these wise men 
who were learned men who knew the scriptures, uh, both of the Jews and, and basically from around the world. These were learned men. They were watching for, they were looking for this predicted Messiah that Daniel spoke about. And then finally, the star appears in the east and they make their way to Jerusalem. And they ask, where is this king of the Jews? Well, the, the scholars, the, the, the Bible scholars, the, the teachers of the law, the rabbis, they all knew where the Messiah was supposed to be born. It's in Bethlehem. And so the wise men went to Bethlehem and they did find Jesus. Now I want you to, I want you to understand something. While they were there, God spoke to the wise men and said, do not go back to Herod to tell Herod about the baby Jesus. So they just they snuck out, left town, without saying goodbye, without telling Herod where the baby Jesus was. And the Bible says Herod was furious. Now I'm going to just tell you something about Herod. This guy, uh, he's been psychoanalyzed. There's some interesting studies about Herod. Psychoanalyzed, and they, some call him a, a paranoid schizophrenic, and there's all kinds of other things that they call him. And the reason for this is because of his great paranoia. Because he, he murdered his wife, he killed off three of his sons, he murdered 300 military men, he killed rabbis, Pharisees, uh, anybody who got in his way, friends, anybody. Anybody that he perceived as a threat to his throne. So you can imagine when he hears that Jesus, like the king, the king of the Jews is born, he thinks, I gotta kill that kid because that's a threat to my throne and to my lineage, to my line. And so he does the calculations when the star first appeared and then he begins his cruel and evil work and he murders the baby boys in Bethlehem. Some think that there were dozens, some, some say hundreds, some even say thousands, and some even say tens of thousands. We're not sure, but we know this. There was a great weeping, a great sorrow in the land. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet, and you can read this yourself in, in Matthew chapter 2, because Matthew quotes Jeremiah. Jeremiah foretells, prophesies of this actual event. The great Rachel's weeping and cannot be consoled. This great murder of these babies. Now here's the good news, folks. Satan is trying to assassinate the baby Jesus. But God speaks to Joseph and Mary and says, you must escape immediately. Your baby's life is in danger. And the Bible says that, that they immediately took Jesus and went to Egypt. Now, can I just give you a little, little side note here? And there's no charge for this. How could the poor people like Joseph and Mary travel to Egypt? Well, I'm going to tell you something. These wise men, when they came, they brought gold, frankincense, and more. You wonder why. Why God inspired the wise men to bring these gifts? Because how many know that God is never taken by surprise? God is sovereign. He's in charge. He knows what's going to happen. And he knew full well that Mary and Joseph would need 
finances to go to Egypt to save the life of their little boy. And that's exactly what happened. And after King Herod died, God spoke to Joseph and Mary and said, it's safe to return now. Bring the baby back. We don't know exactly where they settled, but we know eventually they settled in a small town of Nazareth. And so here are these little babies being slaughtered, cruelly slaughtered. These mothers trying to protect their babies. Folks, this is the Christmas story. We have really sterilized the story as much as we can to make it palatable and comfortable and cozy and warm. But what you need to understand is that there is a supernatural battle going on behind the scenes. You can't see it, but it's there. The baby Jesus was a threat to Satan, to his dominion over the earth. That's right, dominion over the earth. You th- I know you're thinking, well, I thought God was sovereign. I thought God was in control. He is, but guess what happened? God gave Adam and Eve dominion over this earth. We read about that in Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember that? God says, I'm giving you the authority to govern and to take care of the creation that I have created. But by Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve get into trouble. Let me just share that passage of Scripture with you. Genesis chapter 2, God says to Adam and Eve, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Understand something. In the Garden of Eden, there weren't 10 commandments. There weren't over 600 commandments that every Jew of the Old Testament would have known that he had to or she had to keep. There's one command, and the command was simple. Don't eat the fruit. One simple command, God saying, obey me. Just do do what I'm telling you to do. Don't eat the fruit. Remember what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Hey, by the way, can I just remind everybody that true worship of Almighty God is not just singing songs on Sunday. It's living a life in obedience to Christ. That is what is going to secure for you the happiness that God wants you to have. I'm a father of three children. I've given my kids all kinds of instructions. I'm going to tell you the instructions that I give my kids is for their happiness, for their comfort, for their joy, for a rich and satisfying life. If I was a lunatic, I'd make commands for my kids to make their lives miserable. I'm going to tell you today, God is a good God, a good father, and he wants the best for his children. And so God says, don't eat that fruit. Because in that day that you eat the fruit, you'll surely die. Satan comes along, and here's everybody knows the way Satan operates. Satan comes along, and he says to Adam and Eve, God didn't really tell you to do that. Come on. Hey, God's holding out on you. God doesn't want the best for you. God doesn't want you to get the best to have the best. God knows that if you eat that fruit, you're going to be like him. Now, what kind of a loving father would hold that back from you? 
Hey, you've heard Satan whisper in your ear to tell you to do what you're doing and to think the way you think and to speak the way you think. And he gives you all kinds of great reasons, all kinds of great justification. The only problem is that it is against God's will and against his command. You can't do whatever you want to do. I'm going to tell you that is right now for this generation, this is the most difficult thing for this generation. I'm talking about this, the, the current early, uh, youngest generation that's walking the earth today. They don't like the idea of authority. They don't like the idea of obeying. They don't like the idea of listening to anybody else. They're not listening to any, their father. They're not listening to their mother. They don't listen to their pastor. And they certainly are not going to listen to God. Even though God tells us clearly that obedience is what he commands. In fact, the Bible says that disobedience, or another word is rebellion, is like the sin of witchcraft. Now understand that. You say, I'm not a bad person. I'm going to tell you something. If you're disobeying God, you are flirting with Satan and, and the satanic. So God says, if you eat this fruit, you're going to die. And so they, they listened to Satan and in that moment, they listened to Satan and took that fruit. Guess what happened? The authority and the dominion of the earth that God gave to Adam and Eve was transferred over to Satan. And we know what happens by Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 3, they disobey. Genesis chapter 4, what's happening? Their firstborn son is killing their secondborn son. The first murder. You can see the beauty of this beautiful garden contrasted with the horror, the destruction, and the murder in Genesis chapter 4. It's a horrendous scene, folks. Horrible. And you need to understand today that the horrors of Genesis chapter 4 really is a metaphor for our lives. Jesus says that the thief comes to rob and kill and destroy and maim and hurt. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Understand something today, this Christmas story, you have to include the story of the attempted assassination of Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you right now, Satan wants to destroy any chance that any human being could ever have of being saved from the death penalty that God pronounced in Genesis chapter 2. Do you understand that? Until you give your hearts to Jesus, until you're saved, until you surrender to Christ, until you come to Christ and say, God, forgive me for my sin. Until you come to that place, you have to understand that you are under a death penalty. Adam and Eve, they took that fruit, and although they didn't die physically immediately, they died spiritually, as, as shown to us in their eviction from the Garden of Eden. Remember the Garden of Eden. We don't know exactly what the Garden of Eden is, but we do know this, that it represents the very presence of Almighty God, the King of the universe. God says, you cannot stay here anymore. Because he hates them? No. Because evil cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. 
Now, the good news is it doesn't stop here. What you need to understand is that God loves us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here's what you need to know. That when Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden, from God's presence, it put in motion God's great plan to save humanity. Now, Satan knows that God's plan to save humanity is through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. He doesn't fully get it. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. How many know today that Satan is not like God? He dwells in the spiritual realm. But I'm going to tell you right now, Satan, is, he may have a high IQ, but he's not brilliant like God is brilliant. He doesn't have the wisdom. He doesn't have the, the knowledge that God has. It's a lot of people have this under, misunderstanding. They think God and Satan are both equal. One's good, one's bad. <laughs> That's far from the truth. God's up here and everything else is below, including Satan. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. But he does know this. He does know that Jesus Christ is a threat to his governance, to his kingdom on this earth. And, and we all know. We all see evidence that Satan rules on this earth. We see the death, the destruction, the wars, the rumors of wars, the disobedience, the rebellion, the hatred, the, the bitterness. And you know it goes on and on. This is the fruit of Satan's rule. And Satan knows our only hope is Jesus. And so plan A for Satan was kill the Messiah. Kill him off. I don't know if you know this, but there were multiple attempts on Jesus' life. A lot of people don't know that. We read in Luke chapter 4 that they drove Jesus to a cliff with the idea of pushing him off the cliff so he falls to his death. We find the Pharisees and the rulers plotting together to kill Jesus. We've got to kill him. We've got to kill him. We've got to kill him. And Satan's inspiring all this. In fact, we find Jesus, as soon as he's baptized, that the Spirit of God drives Jesus into the wilderness where he's what? He's tempted. And Satan get, tries to get Jesus to bow down and worship him. You see, he knows that if he can destroy Jesus, he destroys our hope, our only hope, our only chance of being saved, our only hope of entering back into the presence of Almighty God. Satan is working overtime. Oh, he knows. He knows that Jesus is the hope of the world. This is why we said the beginning, the beginning of the end of Satan because hope is born, and his name is Jesus. Hey, look at this is what it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 21. And his name will be what? The hope of the world. Let's say it again. And his name will be? Oh, let's try one more time. And his name will be? Thank you for the three people in the front row. I appreciate that. Thank you. Good. Hey, you know what? Satan was eventually successful in putting Jesus to death. What he didn't understand, remember, Satan's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's actually, when it comes to spiritual matters and the things of God, he's actually very stupid. What he doesn't know is that he thinks, he thinks he's been successful 
in inspiring and inciting and provoking the Jewish leaders to put him to death. We'll hear more about that at Easter. But for now, Satan thinks, we got him. High fives in hell. We got him. He's going to the, he's, he's, he's going to the cross. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be dead, and that'll be the end of it. But he didn't know. Oh, I love this. This is so beautiful. The irony, the beautiful irony of this is that when Jesus went to the cross, when Satan inspired people to send him to the cross to crucify him and to kill him, what Satan didn't know is even as he was inspiring the death of Christ, he was signing his own death warrant. Hallelujah. Because when Jesus went to the cross, when he died and was buried, Satan was not expecting the resurrection of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He had no idea what was going to happen. He had no idea that this spelt his end. Wow. He had no idea. Why did everybody else die? And why did Jesus not stay dead? I'll tell you why, friends, because he was perfect without sin. And this is why in one of our Christmas carols and why in the scripture it talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam failed. He disobeyed God, but the second Adam, he never failed. He never sinned against God. The second Adam, of course, is Jesus. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered death, he conquered the grave, he conquered sin so that you and I could walk in victory and you and I have the hope of eternal life. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. That's what Christmas is about. Oh, there's a battle raging. And every Christmas card, you should see Satan in the background somewhere because he's there trying to destroy the Messiah. That was plan A. And I mean, quite frankly, he failed. He, he, he couldn't do it. Couldn't kill the Messiah. That's the good news. I've got some bad news for you, though. The bad news, and we'll call it plan B, is that Satan could not kill Jesus. So what he tries to do is he tries to kill us. Tries to destroy us. Tries to steal our joy, the joy of our salvation. He tries to kill us, destroy us, and rob us of our joy, of our happiness, of our marriage, rob us of our family, our family unity, our family love. He tries to destroy our, our, uh, our careers our relationships with our workmate. He's a liar, a thief, a killer, a destroyer. The Bible calls him a deceiver. Jesus calls him the father of lies. His name means the accuser. You know what I'm talking about. Satan comes along in those quiet moments and he whispers in your ear, you're useless, you're washed up, you're hopeless, you've got no good purpose. 
You've failed, you're, you're a miserable failure, you're a terrible mother, you're a terrible father, you're a terrible son, daughter, husband, wife, you're terrible, you'll never amount to anything. You're a terrible Christian. How could God love you? Satan's doing everything in his power to destroy God's people. Now, in this bad news, there's thankfully some good news. The Bible tells us clearly in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. The only power that Satan has in your life is the power that you give him. Did you get that? Satan has no power and he has no authority over you. When you became a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you right now, Satan lost all power and all authority over you. The only power that he has is what you give him. And when you give him that power, that, my friends, is how he tries to assassinate you. He couldn't assassinate the Messiah, so he's now turned his guns on us, and he's trying to assassinate us. And how he does this, my friends, is trying to break your connection to Jesus. He tries to break your relationship to God. How does he do that? Well, let me remind you of something that Jesus says. He says in John chapter 10, verse 10, which I believe is one of the great verses in Scripture. If you don't know this off by heart, you need to learn it. The thief's purpose, who's the thief? The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And some of you right now today are experiencing Satan having a heyday in your life. I can tell you today how you can destroy his power and his influence in your life. And I'm going to tell you that in just a moment. Jesus says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Maybe in your Bible it says, an abundant life. Hey, let's just remember for a moment what it means to become a Christian. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he gives you a new life. He gives you that abundant, rich, and satisfying life. That means, that means joy and peace here and now before you get to heaven. It's a little taste of heaven right here. You know when a person is born again because they've got peace in their hearts, they've got a smile on their face. How many people are born again here today? My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Wow. Hey, Satan is going to do everything in his power to get you disconnected from God, disconnected from Christ. And there's three ways that he does this. The first thing that he does is he tries to get you to disconnect through failing to commune with God. In the Garden of Eden, it says that God walked in the garden. This is why we say habit number one is to walk with God, like Adam and Eve did before they were evicted from the garden. What does that mean to walk with God? It means that, well, we have a conversation. You talk to God, and God talks to you. You've heard me say this hundreds of times. Sometimes we call it doing devotions. More specifically, it's about praying and reading your Bible every day. 
Hey, if you're disconnected and you're feeling depressed and you're feeling down and you're feeling empty and you're feeling discouraged, you've lost your peace and your joy, the very first thing you need to do is run to the presence of Almighty God. You said, but Pastor Ellen, I thought we were evicted from the Garden of Eden. We were, but when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You were readmitted into the presence of Almighty God. That's what it says in Hebrews. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have access to the throne of God. Not based on your, your righteousness, but based on the righteousness of God. You and I need to go to God every day, and we need to open the word of God and let him speak to us. Hey, when you're not talking to God every day, it's, it's like a plant that doesn't have any water. It begins to wilt. But you pour some water in, and it just comes back to life. That's what it, the way it is with a believer. You start praying and start reading his Bible and start listening to the voice of God. Listen to me. God speaks still. He speaks through his word, and he asks us to speak to him. In fact, it's so important that the Bible calls a failure to pray. It's called sin. The sin of the failure to pray. Why? Because a relationship is built on communication. You take away communication, you don't have a relationship. You show me a couple that, that don't love each other anymore, I'll show you a couple that can't communicate or won't communicate. And so it is with God. The way you're going to have a relationship with God is by communicating with Him. Because I can tell you this, if you stop communicating with God, there's somebody who's very happy to communicate with you. His name is Satan. And he'll start whispering in your ear and telling you what a horrible person you are and how terrible, and, how, and you know you've heard it. And he'll accuse you and accuse you and accuse you. But you run to the presence of God. Oh, Satan has to flee. Satan doesn't want to be in the presence of God. He hates it when you go to the presence of God. Do you want to know joy and victory in your life? Run to the presence of God, and Satan is going to go in the other direction. If you want Satan to leave you alone, run to God. So you and I need to be a people who commune with God on a regular basis. There's something else that you need to understand. This is really important to get this. The thing that, the thing that happens to so many people is they think they have to work, work to win God's favor. Has anybody ever heard of the Protestant Reformation? But over 500 years ago, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk who always felt that he was never good enough. In fact, everybody said, why, why are you beating yourself up, man? You're, you're like one of the most spiritual and holy people we know. On the outside, Martin Luther looked great, but on the inside, he knew that he, he was not the good man that people thought he was. He knew that his motives and his, and his intentions and his imagination was wicked and evil. And so in, a, in great despair, he would do what so many Roman Catholics did back then, and I think still do in some places. He got himself a whip with little chars of bone in it, and he would beat himself and beat himself until his back was just a bloody raw mess, thinking that somehow doing that he could atone for his sin. What he believed is that he could be righteous through his effort, through his work, some of you are trying to be righteous through your own effort, through your own work. I'm going to tell you today, you can never be good enough to get to heaven. Some people think, you know, when, when, compared to others, you know, I'm, I'm doing good and I'm going to get into heaven. And if I compare myself to 
you, I, I think I'm going to do okay in the presence of God. But then if I compare myself to, to others, I might think, oh my goodness, I'm, I'll, I'll never make it into heaven. I'll never, I'm never going to be good enough. Hey, the good news, folks, is that God does not give you admittance into heaven, into the Garden of Eden, because you are so righteous. It's Christ's righteousness that gives you access to heaven. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, remember, who is perfect. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. I don't care how good you are, how righteous you are. I don't care how much money you give to God and to the church. I don't care how many, how many uh, good works that you do. I don't care if you go to the, to the soup kitchen every week to serve. It, all these things are not things that get you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is that you put your faith in Jesus Christ's righteousness. You're literally clothed with Jesus. So when I get to heaven someday, God's not going to look at me and say, Alan, I don't know if you're quite good enough. I've got to check the records. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to, you put your faith in my son. You're in, pal. You're in. That's what gives you the assurance of heaven. And that's what makes Satan run like crazy because I'm going to tell you, Satan is going to put this thought in your head. I've got to be good. I've got to be good. I've got to be good. So rather than trusting in Christ, you're trusting in yourself. Hey, folks, this is what we call gospel preaching, good news preaching. I'm telling you how you're going to have salvation. It's not in yourself. And if Satan can make you think it depends on you, you are lost forever. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through Christ, through Christ alone. He said, does this mean, Pastor Allen, that I don't have to be good? I become a Christian, I can live like hell? Oh, no, 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 no. Hey, the evidence, the proof that you put your faith in Jesus is that you do good works. That's what it says in the book of James, the whole book of James, all five chapters, you can read it yourself. It's all about how people put their faith in Jesus do good, not just good works, great works. That's the evidence. But if you put your faith in yourself, folks, you've got your own religion. It has nothing to do with Jesus. You don't get to heaven through your good works. I'm going to promise you that right now. You get to heaven through your faith in Jesus Christ. We call that solo fide. Only faith. There's one more thing that Satan tries to do. Huh. He tries to get you to stop walking with God every day. He'll distract you with all kinds, TV, computer, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, if you're Trump. All kinds of distractions. Anything but pray and read your Bible. And then he's going to get you to think, well, I've got to have my own, my, own, my own righteousness, my own goodness. I'm going to be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. That's, that's a homemade religion. The faith that pleases God is a faith in Christ's righteousness. And the third thing, here's the third thing, and this is so important. Some of us right now are not ready to see the Lord because of unforgiveness in our hearts. 
You know, there's not many times in the scripture where there's a footnote. Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. And then Jesus gives the footnote. Oh, and by the way, when you see the oh, and by the way, you better underline that, circle it, highlight it, memorize it. Jesus says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, if Jesus hanging from the cross, crucified, beaten up, a bloody pulp, bloody face, a crown of thorns on his head, stabbed in the side, nails through his hands and his feet, if Jesus, who's gone through all of this, could look down from the cross and say, looking at these crucifiers, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If Jesus can do that, then so can you. And you must. Because if you don't forgive, the Bible says you give Satan a foothold in your life. Did you hear that? You give Satan a place, a warm and cozy place to abide. Some of us have lost our victory. We've lost our joy. We've lost our peace because Satan has been victorious in one of those three areas. We're unforgiving. We don't do our devotions. And we're depending on our own goodness to get us into heaven. Satan knows what he's doing. But Jesus knows better. And Jesus has taught us how to live so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Chris Tomlin sings a song, a beautiful song. And let me just read uh, some of the words for you. Son of God and Son of Man, there before the world began. Born to suffer on the cross. Born to save us, all who put their faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. By the way, Jesus died on the cross so that you didn't have to. When you put your faith in Jesus, he takes your place. And then born to raise us from the grave. Hallelujah. Death has no hold. The death penalty now has been revoked. Oh, you'll die physically, but spiritually you are now alive and are going to live forever with our God. Hallelujah. Born to raise us from the grave, Christ the everlasting Lord, he shall reign forevermore. Noel, Noel. This morning I've asked Charlene and Rhonda to sing that song for you. I'm going to ask them to come right now and sing for us. But listen for those words. Jesus Christ loves you. Love incarnate, love 
says in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God the everlasting father and our prince of peace amen no
Let's stand together, shall we? Can we stand together? Father, we want to say thank you for your goodness to us. You've shown us how to survive this world. You've shown us, God, how to walk in victory. You've shown us, oh God, how to stay connected to, to Jesus, who is our hope. He's the hope of the world. He's our hope. He's my hope. And Father, we pray today a prayer of thanksgiving that our Messiah was protected from the assassination attempt by Satan. But we know, Lord, that Satan is still at work trying to destroy God's people. But we thank you that we are more than conquerors through Christ, that when we live as Christ has called us to live, if we depend on your righteousness and not on our own, if we don't depend on our own goodness but rely, but rely on the goodness of Christ, that keeps us connected to the Master, to Jesus. God, if we have that daily walk with you, praying and reading our Bible every day, making sure that our heart connects with your heart, continuing and maintaining a relationship with you where we're communicating every day. We know, God, that keeps our hearts alive and vibrant. God, we thank you that you give us the grace to forgive those who have sinned against us. We thank you, O oh God, for setting up for us an example through Christ what it means to forgive. Lord, whatever it is that we're struggling with today, there's some here who are struggling in all three of those three areas, and Satan has almost been successful in assassinating certain believers today. But we thank you for your word that shows us how we can be alive in Christ and be more than conquerors through Christ. And so we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Amen. Amen. Tell the person beside you, stay connected to Jesus.